Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yes, welcome back. It's UAP time. Stephen Diener here on the Unidentified Alien Podcast for episode 66 of UAP. So thanks for joining me here today for the newest episode of the show as we go into Top Secret Part 2 in this uh, two-part series. The final episode of this two-part series, I mean, because quite honestly, I could probably do 10 parts of this, 20 parts of of this, but I want to move on to some other things as uh, the show, the podcast moves forward into other subjects. But today, you know, because last time we kind of talked about uh, the the Montauk Project, and that was interesting, Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, enjoyed that. Some really, you know, wild things to consider in that one. But when it comes to this, I think what you're going to hear here today, here, here today, is um, maybe you'll find it hits a little bit harder than episode 65 did, part one of the top secret series with uh, the Montauk Project. But you be the judge of that as we get into it. It's been a couple weeks, so I apologize for that. I always try to get back here with you as soon as I possibly can for a new episode. So I am very, very excited Honestly, I am uh, to do this episode here, part two, and it's uh, called the Tonopah Test Range. And there's another um, name that it goes by, which you're going to hear in just a second. Before I get into that, let's go ahead first and hit our factoid. What do you say? Factoid. I got to be honest, I'm still not sure if I like that. <laughs> I mean, I'm the one who made it, and I'm not sure if I like it. So I, I guess I'll keep playing it unless you tell me that you absolutely hate it. But factoid. So this is something I, I've kind of been, um, I guess, trying to comprehend ever since I had the discussion a couple weeks ago, about two or three weeks ago. And if you're listening, hello, I won't say the name, but um, you know who you are. My my military contact is all I'm going to say, my contact within the military uh, really, really great person. Um, really, you know, willing to to sit down and talk about some of the things that they have come across uh, within their time dealing with high level security things. And I'm sorry if I keep stopping because I'm trying to make sure I don't say the wrong things here. Um, but when I spoke to my military contacts a few weeks ago, I, I've been trying to again really put everything together because we spoke for a long time. It was about an hour and a half, two hours. And I wanted to come back to you. And I, I am going to try to get this person on the show as well. We've been talking about doing that. So schedules and scenarios and situations just kind of have to meet up in order to do that. But I, I think they will in the future for sure. So you can look forward to hearing from my military contact yourself here in the future, I think. Um, but as we spoke, there was a lot that was said when I had this hour and a half or so conversation with um, my contact, and when I was talking to them, they told me a lot of different things about sightings and things that are kind of, um, you know, kept within the highly classified or top secret, you know, no pun intended for the episode, uh, range of, you know, like Department of Defense type stuff, 
And so I've been trying to, again, kind of put it all together so I can um, impart to you some of the things that I learned during this conversation. So I want to do that real quick and make that the factoid here today. The Chinese spy balloons. So obviously that was a very big deal and is actually just in the news recently. I mean, you remember I did the whole episode when that happened, the, the balloon frenzy episode that, uh, that you heard a few weeks back when this whole thing was going on. And, you know, now the report came out just a few days ago, as I record this anyway, that China was able to get all the information that they needed as the balloon flew over the United States. So essentially, when we shot it down, it was useless to them at that point because they got everything they needed. And I found that really intriguing, which the reason why I bring it up is because when I was speaking to my military contact, granted now, okay, remember, it was about two or three weeks ago when I spoke to my contact and they told me that that exact report, (laughs) NBC came out with that report just a few days ago, but I was told it two or three weeks ago from my contact. So I was like, well, how about that? I guess they were right. So good on you. Basically saying that China wasn't concerned with the balloon being shot down off the coast of South Carolina like it was because it was feeding everything back to them in real-time information. So I found that to be very interesting because that was something that we spoke about. We also spoke about, and this goes to, um, you know, the theory of, well, maybe these UAP, these UFO people are seeing our secret Chinese or Russian technology. So when it comes to that, my contact was telling me that essentially from, from his knowledge, from his inner workings that he has seen, China doesn't have anything original. According to my contact, they essentially steal everything and through basically, you know, cybersecurity attacks and things of that nature. So what that means to me is that whatever is being seen in the sky or under the water, quite frankly, USOs, unidentified submerged objects are not talked about nearly enough. And that is a huge, huge thing that happens around the world. So, you know, I've, that's kind of a teaser. Maybe we get into that later on in, in the series here of UAP. Um, I, we've spoken about them before, but I would love to cover that more in depth as well later on. But if it's not China, because they're stealing the information and anything they build is already, you know, essentially in existence, right? If they're stealing the plans for everything, then whatever is in the sky is not there is because if it was... We would know about it because they're probably stealing it from us or another country, maybe like Russia or whatever it is, that we're spying on as well to find out the information. So here's how this all comes into play and how it all comes together. Because I was told that essentially what happens is contractors like you know Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, they have all of the wreckage when it comes to alien spacecraft. I've, I've heard that before. But to hear some type of confirmation in a way, not direct confirmation, I don't want to you know, misrepresent, but confirmation in a way when I was speaking to my contact that that would make sense, that that would indeed be the case. Reason being, because if you have contractors like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, it essentially allows for a loophole to keep things hidden, right, on, on different black sites like we've been talking about for this top secret series, whether it was, you know, Montauk or the Tonopah test range, which we're going to hear talk about in just a second, which, you know, kind of segues into this. It would make sense that these contractors would be the ones to have and control and to essentially administer over this top secret uh, information or top secret, you know, weaponry technology that would come from 
a downed alien spacecraft because they're not beholden to the same type of, you know, Freedom of Information Acts, for instance, that governments, departments would be. So it makes sense to me, and it might make sense to you even more sense once you hear about Area 52. So, from one supposed secret base to another that we've been speaking about here, what if I told you that Area 51 had a helper? Yes, another base that has all kinds of goodies and mysterious past that surrounds it, just like any other good secret base would have. This is something that actually, I mean, really, I have um, had on my radar for a long time talking about the Tonopah test range, which you're going to hear the name Area 52. And I saw the opportunity here to finally get into it today after having the discussion with my contact and kind of putting everything together and realizing there's really there really might be something to all of this. So, But that's what we're going to be talking about here today to finish off this two-part series of Top Secret. Here's a little uh, intro into the Tonopah test range, Area 52. It's a Tonopah tradition to keep a tight lip about a place they call the base. Back in the mid-80s, when the rest of the world was still in the dark about stealth technology, Tonopah residents saw bat-like 117s flying overhead almost nightly, but didn't tell anyone. The base, all 525 square miles of it, is best known as the Tonopah Test Range, or TTR. In government documents, however, it's called Area 52. All right, so there you go. You heard it there, Area 52. It's kind of like the lesser-known sibling to Area 51 because you always hear about Area 51, Area 51. It's all over the place. It's in movies. It's in books and everywhere. I mean, you know, we've mentioned it before with Bob Lazar. It's it's kind of like Area 52 is the Frank Stallone to Area 51, Sylvester Stallone, you know, when it comes to the lesser-known sibling. But that doesn't mean that it isn't any less spectacular. In fact... It may actually hold even more secrets than its infamous counterpart. The area is around, just to kind of give you the layout of the land here, it's, it's about 285 square miles, pretty big, and it's located uh, in northwestern Utah. So if you, you know, geography as far as Area 51 uh, being in, uh, you know, southern Nevada, then you kind of think about, okay, northwestern Utah, southern Nevada, you know, it's in the same geographical area, but it's pretty far apart still. You also heard it being referred to as the Tonopah Test Range, or they call it the TTR for short, you know, for people, I guess, who are in the know or who live around there. The land surrounding it is also known as Dugway Proving Ground. So, and that's just as highly guarded as Area 51. The whole thing is very highly guarded. And when you start to hear some of the things that may supposedly be going on there or some of the things that they're working on, it's probably for a good reason that it's pretty uh, highly guarded. Here's just to, to start off here, some of the things that they say about Area 52. There's always something, you know, going on there, some secret project uh, going on there. there Before he became interested in UFOs um, at Area 51, famed pilot John Lear was staking out the boundaries of Area 52 in search of secret airplanes, planes that some think were never built. Originally, when the F-117 came out, that was a cover airplane for another airplane, and the other airplane was the F-19. Now, you go anywhere on the net, talk to anybody, and they say that's total bunk. There was no F-19, but there was. Okay, so obviously that's just to kind of pick it up there and give a, um, a nod to a couple of legends, really, in the UFO world. Of course, John Lear there. The, his father developed a Learjet. He's uh, the, the late aviator, uh, a, aviator, I should say, John Lear passed away uh, just a few years ago, I believe. 
But he talked a lot about, he did a lot of investigations into the UFO phenomenon and everything having to do with secret bases and secret governments dealings when it came to, you know, UFOs and UAP and everything. And so you're going to hear him as the episode goes on. And you also heard from George Knapp. He was also the voice that you heard earlier while we, when we introduced uh, Area 52. So legends, legends in the UFO community there. Uh, but let's touch on what John Lear was saying. He's, he's speaking more here to begin on the defense and development side of things when it comes to Area 52. So let's go ahead and just focus on that angle first. Okay, let's put that on a shelf by itself. I think it's safe to say that any top secret base, whether it be Area 51, Area 52 that we're talking about now, or even something like the Dulce base, which we've talked about in the past, it's something that's you know, absolutely working on weapons tech. Absolutely. That's why they're secret, right? Or maybe at least one of the reasons why they're secret is because they're working on future weapons tech to use against adversaries, right? To always have that upper hand. You don't want anybody finding out about what you're working on. It's been going on for decades, 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 decades. Okay. So working under that assumption, I tend to believe Roger, uh, not Roger Lear, that's a doctor, uh, John Lear's story about some of the tech he says was being developed at the time. It makes sense to me. Why not, right? If, if you are working on a secret F-19 and you want to say you're working on something else, well, you you know you kind of make this smokescreen, so to speak. You you know look over here at the shiny object while we're working on something else over here. It makes perfect sense to me in that aspect of just the defense part of things, right? The weapons tech. I also believe that it is one of the main reasons for the incredibly tight security, of course. I mean... You see them at all these facilities. You hear about, you know, with Storm Area 51, when that whole thing was going on some years ago, all the incredible security that goes through. You hear always hear about, you know, someone comes up to the gate at Area 51 and helicopters come out of nowhere and these, you know, big trucks come out seemingly from out of nowhere. They just appear in front of you. So how or why is all that happening, right? Well, they're working on highly classified and sensitive projects within the confines of these top secret areas, whether it's a military base or a government contractor, whatever it may be, this, there's top secret stuff going on here, whether it's defense related or otherworldly. Either way, it's stuff they don't want people knowing about, of course. So to that point, let me say this. A company named Sandia, which, believe it or not, actually, is a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin, okay? They manage the Area 52 base. And remember what we were just talking about before during the factoid, companies like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon are said to be the main players. I mean, look, Skunk Works is a division of Lockheed Martin. Skunk Works is where they work on a ton of secret weapons tech and, and aircraft. Okay, I mean, that's where the SR-71 Blackbird was, was developed, for goodness sakes. So you better believe that Lockheed Martin is absolutely very, very much involved with any type of top secret projects going on, whether it be just, you know, uh, defense development or reverse engineering alien aircraft. Yes, they would be involved. So it's interesting to me that Sandia, which is a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin, is actually, I guess you could say, the company that manages the Tonopah test range, Area 52. So, of course, now the question is, what kind of secret projects have gone on or might still be going on. Well, John Lear did have more to say on that. He says he knows 
or new anyway, that you wouldn't see it above ground, that there is actually more going on underground than you may have ever thought before. There is so much stuff underground that um, that it's essentially all the secret stuff is underground now. Example, Lear alleges that a clean nuclear device was used to create a giant chamber under Paiute Mesa in Area 52, and that a facility capable of housing 25,000 people or troops is active out there. He says he heard part of this from a cement truck driver who worked there. Okay, so obviously a lot to unpack there in just, just a short clip. That is a... Uh, It's kind of a bombshell statement, right? I mean, you're talking about basically a a giant base underground. Now, it's not anything we haven't heard before. I mean, we've talked before about things are underground. There's different levels to Area 51. We've talked about the Dulce base. I hate to keep bringing up old episodes, but it's all there. When we talked about Philip Schneider way back when, within the first five episodes of UAP, never heard it. You can go back and find it on, you know, wherever you found this episode here. Um... There is, I mean, Dulce Base was said to have levels and levels of underground, you know, bases and and departments where they were working on secret tech and, quite frankly, where actual aliens were working as well alongside, somewhat alongside, uh, U.S. staff, soldiers, okay, to, to reverse engineer things. So if you're talking about underground bases, underground structures... It's not that far-fetched when you consider it's been talked about a lot before. And there's a lot of places to do it. I mean, look, you have all these mesas, the mountains, everywhere. It's in the middle of a desert, for goodness sake. So it's not like, you know, you can't hide it. But also, what is the good stuff, right, that, that John Lee referred to there? And how much is underground just in general? I mean, just in general. Could we be looking at an advanced transportation system. Just think about this for a second. If we're talking about, and I know there's already subway systems and things like that, but this isn't that. I'm not not talking about subway systems in in New York and such. But if if we're going to believe, okay, that there is underground bases within Area 51 in Southern Nevada, within Area 52 in Northwestern Utah, within the Dulce Base, okay, in New Mexico, of course, all these things within the same area there in the desert plains of the United States then how much is actually going on? Why would they stop there, I guess, is my question, right? Why would they stop there? If they know that they can be successful underground with clandestine operations, then maybe, maybe there's more going on under <laughs> beneath our feet than we could ever even dream about. I mean, is it possible there's like some type of advanced transportation system right underneath our feet? Just like, I mean, look, Talking about Philip Schneider and the, and the Dulce base, he talked about that, that, that there is this transportation system that they used in New Mexico at the base and that it kind of like carried them throughout the country. I mean, they can't be the only ones using underground transportation, right? But I do want to touch on something here. Again, I am intrigued by they have the good stuff under there. What is that? Right. We can only guess. But there was something there that he said at the end that I'm sure you caught it, too. He talked about, talking about John Lear here, when I say he, he talked about a cement truck driver was the one who told him about the underground workings happening at Area 52. Let's hear a little bit more about that. He said it would take at least, you know, four hours to get to the bottom, dump the cement, and then wind his, his way back up. For some reason, uh, he disappeared off the face of the earth after he told us that story. 
Well then, <laughs> he's gone. Um, now look, you can think John Lear is a crackpot. You can think he was lying about all the research he did for decades when it came into secret bases and secret workings and and uh, just aliens and UFOs in general. You can think whatever you want, that you know that's always the philosophy here, right? I'm not telling you what to think. This is just what's being said. And then we can theorize together. But when you talk about if that part is true, where a cement truck driver is the one telling John Lear this, and if anybody would find out, it would be him. He was well-known within the UFO community. That's somebody that you would want to talk to. He has a lot of clout behind his name, being that his dad essentially developed the Lear jet. Okay? That's where he gets the name. So why wouldn't you talk to somebody like that? You feel like that's a trusted source, somebody who's reputable, credible within the space. So if he's told that, and then the cement truck driver disappears after giving him this incredible piece of top secret information, that's a little concerning. Now, we don't have to go to the nefarious right off the bat. If you want to talk about, you know, maybe there was an accident. Maybe if he was a, an actual cement truck driver working in this underground portion of Area 52, where he's driving four hours underground, I mean, could you imagine that? How deep that must be? I mean, just think about how long it takes you to get somewhere in four hours if you go on a road trip. That's, that's a few hundred miles. A few hundred miles. Think about that. I mean, is it possible that there's really that type of structure underneath the ground of northwestern Utah? A few hundred miles? That's what it, I mean, that's what four hours amounts to. Think about any road trip you've been on. That's what it comes out to, essentially. So if this guy was actually for real, and he told John Lear this story, and then he disappears, obviously, our mind goes to, well, was he killed? Okay, let's just flat out say it. Or... Maybe it was an accident. Maybe, look, you're driving down a, a dark, you know, musty cave or whatever in a cement truck. Accidents happen. Maybe something like that. Or maybe the guy just went incognito and got scared and never wanted to talk to anybody again and went to go live off the grid. Who knows? But it's worth considering, right? And if he's correct about these things, John Lear, it really makes you wonder what kind of base or transportation systems they may have been working on underground, right? I mean, what was actually going on down there? According to some of the reports, including from Lear himself, they say that there was a high-speed railway system similar to the one that we talked about with the Dulce base that Philip Schneider referred to back in the mid-90s. Okay, so we are now hearing similar accounts of a high-speed railway system underground from two different people in two different time periods. Philip Schneider from the Dulce base, not in this episode. Again, it's an earlier episode, maybe like three or four if you go back and listen, if you've never heard it. He's talked about that, did talk about that in the 90s. He was killed, by the way. If you're wondering what happened to Philip Schneider, spoiler alert for that episode, they found him dead in his apartment. They say it was suicide. You make up your own mind. But after he came out to speak, all of a sudden he's dead. Okay? Kind of like the cement truck driver. But he talked about these railway systems underground. And now John Lear says the same thing years later about a high-speed railway system that's built underground. Now his, the one that John Lear is talking about, is built from Area 52 to go to Las Vegas. So that would make sense if you're talking about in relation to Area 51. Is it possible that these two top-secret bases, installations, whatever you want to call them, would use... An underground railway system, a high-speed system, 
underground to transport either personnel or equipment. You make it that way you will for equipment back and forth between the two installations, between the two bases without being seen. I mean, it makes sense to me, but that's that's the claim. You would also have to figure out that it would connect to other proving grounds and bases, right? Like Area 51, of course, or other things within the, those proximities. Maybe this is a whole network of underground railroad systems. Not maybe just a, if we're accepting this theory, okay, it's, maybe it's more than just a straight shot between Area 51 in Nevada to Area 52 in Utah. Maybe there's other, you know, uh, I guess you can say railways or systems that break off and go to other proving grounds and, and other installations. Why not? If we're going to think about this, you might as well just go down the rabbit hole completely. Now, it's I know it's it's unbelievable. Um, he also mentioned something just to get back to what else John Lear said here and get off on, on a tangent there. He mentioned something that's even caught me off guard. What do you make of this? A disappearing runway. Let's let him explain it. At 500 feet, they'll look down and it'll be just like forest or, you know, desert or just normal landscape. And all of a sudden it'll unzip like this and they'll see a runway. Okay, so let's just look at all this as a whole right now when it comes to the Tonopah test range, the Area 52. Um, and by the way, I can almost guarantee you that won't be the last you hear from John Lear on this show. He's an extremely fascinating character who spent years researching all this stuff. Um, so you most likely will hear more from him as uh, the podcast goes on in, in various episodes. Um, but when you think about all these claims, okay, the underground uh, railway system, the use, the use of clean nuclear energy to blow out, you know, huge portions of underground uh, areas to make all these, these systems and bases and whatnot. And then you put it together with a runway that essentially unzips from underground I mean, maybe unzips is kind of a weird way to put it because the way I think about it when I hear that is that like the ground literally unzips like a giant zipper. It would just kind of slowly open up. But if there's a way where you can think about it, I mean, just think about if you drive into your garage. Okay, let's use this analogy. You're driving into your garage. You press the button, your garage door opens and you drive in. What if this is the same type of thing except instead of you know, unzipping, so to speak, the ground unzips. What if you just have a ramp that's built into the ground to make it look like, you know, a runway? And it's actually, you know, a, just a, a way of covering up an underground tunnel. So they press a button like you would on your garage door opener. And this, what looks like a runway, opens up because it's actually mechanical and it allows for airplanes to land underground or I guess anything else. That's just the way I'm trying to, I guess, comprehend that and put that into different terms. Uh, but it's fascinating. No doubt about that. I mean, these claims that John Lear makes all happening at area 52. But when you think about all the reported advanced technology like that or anything else that we've spoken about, we have to ask the question is the U.S. military reverse engineering alien technology at Area 52 specifically? We've talked about reverse engineering many times. We've talked about it at Area 51 and at different bases, okay? 
but specifically Area 52. Is it happening there? Just like everything else we've reported. Well, interestingly enough, okay, let me just chew on this for a second. Some Native American tribes in the area of the Tonopah Test Range of Northwest Utah have reported seeing unexplainable lights in the sky for years. And we've heard that before with Native American tribes, whether it's in Arizona, whether it's Nevada, wherever, New Mexico, they've talked about for generations, way, I mean, even before <laughs> these bases were built, generations, their stories talk about seeing lights in the sky, you know, the sky beings. So could it be just experimental aircraft being tested out near the grounds? It wouldn't be 100 years ago, right? Maybe it is now. Sure. Why not? If you want to go with that. But according to this one police officer here that I'm going to play for you, he's a police officer within uh, the area of the um, the grounds surrounding Area 52. Uh, according to him, he thinks that's actually something that did not come from a black ops program. It's something that he has trouble, I guess, reconciling himself. Here's, here's his story. In uh, 2004, uh, it was around midnight. One of the residents came up and knocked on my door and asked me if he could help pull him out of a, a spot. He went off the road and stuff, and I said, fine. As we got there, something caught my eye, and I looked up, and six to 800 feet above us was uh, a lit-up craft. It was almost saucer-shaped. The guesstimated speed on it was about five to 10 miles an hour. When we got there, we did not see it come over the mountain. It just appeared. There were six lights in a circle. I guesstimated it at about 80 feet in diameter. So pretty detailed description there. And it's it, what I found intriguing and what kind of, you know, caught my attention was how slow it was going, right? I mean, that's like at hovering speed, five to 10 miles per hour, um, 80 feet in diameter, circular lights, pretty classic account of a UFO, UAP. So something like this is, I mean, really just one example of what people living out near the Area 52 um, area, I guess, what they see. They could be seeing military experiments. Absolutely. I am not here to uh, say that is that is out of the question. A hundred percent. They could be seeing military experiments. I'm sure they do see military experiments in the sky all the time. The people there, from what I've heard, are very guarded about what goes on there. They, they feel like they're entrusted with U.S. government and, you know, defense secrets, and they want to honor that trust by not talking about the experimental aircraft that they see. I think that's great. But like this one, you know, uh, that the police officer is talking about, it just kind of makes you think, could that be an experimental aircraft or something else going on there? One reportedly top secret, uh, top secret aircraft that maybe people are seeing, not only in Area 52, but in other parts of the country. And this is the first time I'm mentioning this. I've been wanting to mention this for a long time, and I finally have the opportunity today as it ties in to mention this reported top secret aircraft referred to as the TR-3B Black Manta. Now, I'll say it again, the TR-3B Black Manta. This is something that, again, I've been waiting to dive into for a while, and if I'm being honest with you, I could go down an entire rabbit hole and spend 30 minutes just on the Black Manta today as one thing alone, and maybe I'll get into this in further detail in the future. But for now, I'll just say that it is supposedly, according to reports, um, a black triangular-shaped aircraft. Sound familiar? 
and it supposedly employs anti-gravity technology. Now, I'm not going to lie, that does sound a lot like the type of thing that they would be working on at Area 52. But conversely, if it's not the TR-3B, then they could be seeing the very source of the technology that the U.S. military is basing all of their future tech off of. Like that we'd be reverse engineering the tech to build something like the TR-3B Black Manta, this triangular-shaped anti-gravity space, you know, aircraft. Where are they getting that technology from, right? Reverse engineering, or so they say. And so what if people aren't seeing that all the time? What if there's something else they're seeing, such as the parent aircraft, if you will, meaning, of course, the, the source of this being alien aircraft. The story continues here, actually, and these I'm going to play these final details because I think they're pretty interesting. So as we kind of chew on all of that, you can listen here as uh, the same police officer kind of finishes off his witness account of what he saw on that night in 2004. Before it got too far ahead of us going out to the flatland, I had a spotlight in my pickup truck. And I reached out and turned it on it for maybe 15, 20 seconds. And it turned around and came back over us again. And that's when we started getting nervous. As it came back, going eastbound back towards the Dugway Proving Ground, it went up and over Ibapaw Peak. And the Ibapaw Peak is about 14,000 feet. And then as soon as it disappeared within 30 seconds to a minute, two F-16s coming from Nevada were in hot pursuit behind it in the same flight path. And then they disappeared over the top of the mountain going eastbound back towards the Dugway Proving Ground. So I guess the thing that I think about when you hear that is, I mean, amongst many other things, would be, would you have F-16s escorting um, a, a secret, a top secret U.S. military aircraft on a test flight? Now, maybe. I don't know really how all that works, if it would be escorting it or trailing, because in this case, you're talking about F-16s who are trailing this aircraft or not necessarily trailing, but chasing this aircraft. I don't think F-16s would be chasing their own aircraft, right? I mean, why would why would U.S. pilots be chasing one of their own experimental aircrafts unless it just went haywire and they're trying to get it before it crashes somewhere? But that sounds like a chase to me, not an escort, not a trail. That's That's my opinion. But when I consider something like this, especially given the area that it happened in, I mean, I, I have to think, could we be looking at an indication just from that story alone, that one of the most famous claims about Area 52 might be true. I shouldn't say just that story. I mean, really everything that we've talked about here today, when you add it all up, is it conceivable that really a treasure trove of alien tech has been moved from the infamous Area 51, or at least, you know, the good stuff, as John Lear referred to earlier, to the lesser known Area 52 using those supposed sophisticated underground railways and transportation systems that we spoke about earlier. Could they be moving all that stuff because there's so much heat and so much attention in Area 51? One of the theories has been that they moved all the good stuff to Area 52, and one way to do that without being seen would be underground. There's even claims that there have been actual alien bodies taken to Area 52. Dead and alive, by the way. So maybe we'll dig deeper into that last thought of these uh, dead and or alive aliens 
being taken to Area 52 for further study or cooperation even. Um, maybe we'll dig deeper into that thought on a future episode, but that's all I got for today. I think that's, I think that's been enough for today, uh, to finish out this part two of the top secret series on the Tonopah test range, area 52. So until next time, when it comes to all the questions that we posed here, I'll just say, as I always do, it's up to you to decide the answers for yourself. You take the information, you take the stories and you decide what makes sense to you. But until next time, I'll have you uh, know that we are going to cover something that's, again, I've always found fascinating. Astronauts. What are they seeing, and what have they spoken about? Of course, just like pilots. Pilots have seen many things in the sky. Some talk about it, some don't. Astronauts are the same way. So next time on UAP, we're going to talk about astronaut sightings and their accounts, the ones who have spoken, as well as NASA footage and files that may not be very well known. So we'll get all we'll get into all of that next time on UAP on episode 67. I promise I'll get it out to you as soon as I possibly can. It's not easy, but I, I do my best for you. And thank you very much. Again, you know, I say for you, and I really, really mean that. I do this all for you because of the way that you have taken to the show, that you've taken to me. Um personally to bring these these stories and to, and to bring these this information to you I can't even put into words how much it means to me the uh, the messages and the feedback that I've received from all of you saying how much you've enjoyed it and how much you relate to it and you you enjoy what I put out there for you so I do it for you it just takes me a little while sometimes to get it all together so I'll come back as soon as I can for episode 67 when we talk about astronaut sightings and accounts Please continue at your leisure to download and subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts, whether it's on Amazon, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, whatever works for you. You could always check it out uh, and search for UAP, the UAP podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Oh, and I almost forgot, of course, on Twitter, if you want to follow the show, for those of you who aren't, at UAPodcast850 on Twitter, post updates, respond to your messages, anything that you want to say to me about the show or about any experiences that you've had, anything, really, you could always reach out to me there, at UAPodcast850 on Twitter. I always try to get back to everyone uh, as quickly as I can, and I love hearing from you, too, so feel free to reach out there. But yes, until next time, it's Stephen Diener right here on UAP, the Unidentified Alien Podcast. I'm very much looking forward Uh, I very much look forward to talking to you again soon on the next episode. Until then, have a great day, a great week. I will talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.